I'm Tony Epstein, and this is The Magical Mystery Tour, a show that dives into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Today we're going to hear a few talks, beginning with Bayo Akumalafe, who I've been very much enjoying listening to lately. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. In the beginning, the end. It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. So where to start? When you're in the middle of a story, it isn't a story at all, but only a confusion, a dark roaring, a blindness a wreckage of shattered glass and splintered wood, like a house in a whirlwind or, or else a boat crushed by the icebergs or swept over the rapids, and all aboard are powerless to stop it. It's only afterwards that it becomes anything like a story at all, when you're telling it to yourself or to someone else. There's a generosity that wants to be born, an abundance that is inching its way through our models of identity making, of justice seeking, and is spilling through us, finding its voice through our bodies this morning. And yet this generosity is unspeakable, it's ineffable. It's beyond words and language at this point in time. I'd like you to exercise this beautiful invocation of slowing down in times of urgency by embracing the person next to you so tight, so tightly that you leave an imprint of your skin on that person's skin. Let's do that. Okay, thank you. 
where I come from, a place in West Africa called Nigeria. And before we tell a story, there's only time to tell a story. I was going to talk about quantum indeterminacy and the climate solutions, the technicalities of trying to solve a global crisis. But there's no time for that, so I'm just going to tell a story, okay? Um, so where I come from, before a story is told, there is an invitation to tell the story. Because storytelling and story listening are not two separate things. And so the storyteller calls out, Allo! And then everyone says, Allo! Okay, so I'm just going to do it now. <laughs> Hold on a bit. So, Allo! 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 Let's do it, okay? You initiated. Before I tell the story, I was on Whidbey Island two weeks ago in Washington State, Seattle. And I was in deep meditation with a Zen master friend of mine, staring at this big expanse of water. And as is usually the case during meditation, something occurred to me. A question, I didn't let it hold or linger, but I felt this is maybe something I would like to share after we're done. And the question was, can you count the number of waves on the ocean? And I shared that with my Zen master friend, and he said, aha, I'd like to offer an answer to that. I have an answer. And then he stretched out his hand like this, and flailing his limbs and curling his fingers and making some kind of gestures. And then he returned to his form. And I understood what happened before he even tried to explain. He said, maybe some questions don't want answers. Maybe some problems don't desire solutions. Maybe there's no real resolution to that. Maybe there's, this is a koan, if you will, a riddle something deeper than, that can be met by the logic of a resolution. And in holding that, I wonder if there isn't a way of seeing what we rudely call climate change, climate collapse, climate chaos as a deeper riddle than any of the solutions we can throw at it can unravel. Is there a sense in noticing that what is happening to us around the world, whether it's fires, whether it's the lack of water in Chennai, whether it's the spill in the Niger Delta of shell oil, maybe this is something so profound that we must meet it in a different kind of energy altogether, something deeper than an answer, something deeper than a solution. And so I have some questions today. What if... What if the way we respond to the crisis is part of the crisis? What if justice is getting in the way of transformation? What if a different kind of gesturing, responsivity, is required in this time? Something deeper than a solution. Because this is not just a simple causal relationship, a cause-effect relationship. Maybe something deeper is calling us into unprecedented kinds of organizations and relationships and gestures. 
And this wisdom that something deeper might be calling us has been held by African people for a long time in our cultural intelligences and techniques and practices, one of which is called a libation. Does anyone know what a libation is? Can I just see your hands up? You, you've heard of a libation. A libation is, I mean, I grew up watching libations. I didn't understand what it meant. I would see my father pour some wine to the ground, and I would think, what a perfect waste of wine. Why would you do that? And elders will pour drink to the floor, and they will mutter some words that I couldn't understand. And I always wanted to know, what are they doing? What's this all about? And I heard a story about why this happens to be the case, not just for Nigerians, not just for Wakandans, not just for Ghanaians or South Africans, but for most of Africa, the ritual of the libation, noticing water as prayer. This is the story, okay? So one more time. Hello. In old Egypt. It wasn't called Egypt then. It was called Kemet. There's a story of a god, the sun god Ra. And he was an old man who would get drunk every morning and just sit at the steps of his shame, drooling in his beard. And people would come by and just point at him and just say, you know, look at the noble god Ra. Look at him in his divinity just sitting there drooling, wasting away. And so Ra got angry, and he threw a tantrum, and he decided to go back into the heavens. So he returned to the heavens, and he was still in his rage and outraged and angry and feeling like the whole world had fallen apart, something almost like what my brother Maurizio felt this morning. And then he called his daughter, who is also his mother, who is also his wife. Don't ask me how. Hathor, Hathor is her name. Yeah, Hathor is her name. And Hathor comes and he says, I would want you to avenge me. Go to the realm of the mortals, to the human beings, and leave no stone unturned, leave no vein untapped. Drink their blood. Destroy all of them in his rage. And Hathor said, yes, father, and husband, and son. (laughs) Proceeds to earth and starts to do her work, eats up everyone, leaves no stone unturned, and every day she would leave puddles of blood gleaming in the sunset everywhere, and she would drink that blood, and she would leave. And Ra looked down from the heavens and noticed, yeah, so this is what I would have liked to see happen, but maybe this is a bit too much, so maybe I just want to wrap things up. So Hathor, could you just, I'm, I'm fine now, I'm Okay. <laughs> But Hathor was so intent on this course of action that she did not stop. She did not give up. She kept on doing what she was doing. And so this is where the limitations of divinity showed up. God himself could not stop what is happening. He could not stop the fires from raging. And so the men and the women and the children prayed to Ra and said, help us, do something about it. And Ra said, I can't stop this myself. And so they met in council, in community. They all came together. And what do we do about Hathor? How do we stop Hathor? And then one of them, one of the community stood up and said, well, you gave the order to Hathor to drink the blood of human beings. Maybe we need to stop being human beings for that to work. 
How do we stop being human beings? Someone already caught into the frequency of that wisdom and said, aha, a trick. We need to trick Hathor. How do we trick Hathor? We need to change our blood. Maybe our blood becomes wine. And this became the trick. This became the intelligence of the community that they will pour wine every morning on the ground and they will pour it strong red wine just in the places that they knew her thought would descend from and start her eating cannibalistic campaign. And they will pour it every morning and hopefully this was the plan. She would drink of that blood, forget where she was and then go away. (laughs) As outrageous as that plan was, it worked. And Hathor would come, notice the blood. Hmm, if I think straight, I, I, I imagine that I drank all the blood yesterday. Maybe this is something that I left behind. And she would drink it, and she would get really drunk, and then she would stumble off. As a result, the men and the women and the children and Ra decided, this is something we need to continue forever. Hence the libation. When we pour the libation on the ground, it is a way of noticing the trickery that makes the universe work, that the world is made by the trickster, that the world is sustained by the trick, if you will, that we, like water, are homeless. Because if you notice anything about water and its entanglement and its fluidity and its porousness, it is that water is not at home with itself. Water is the embodiment of homelessness. It is fugitive. It is self-fugitivity, if you will. It is this invitation to deconstruct oneself over and over again. It is an invitation to shapeshift. It is an invitation to become other than what we are. It is an invitation to touch the porosity of our membranes, to shapeshift, to remember. And I mean remember not in the sense of just recalling a memory, but remembering, reconfiguring our members if you will. I call that rememberment. This invitation to pour libation is not just to remember our ancestors, it is also to reconfigure ourselves. And I feel that in these times of climate chaos, some different kind of response is needed. And so we're fighting right now in the world, there's a techno-bureaucratic political machine that is trying to, that is shuddering and is vibrating and is trying to produce solutions to the problems. Now, this is not to dismantle or dismiss or disparage all the solutions that we have, but it's to call into question the idea that this is not the time for us to sacrifice. This is not the time for us to fall apart like a seed and become something else. And this is the invitation that I want to leave us with, that maybe this is a time where the very concept of man is being deterritorialized. It's a big word, but it means we're being deconstructed. All the things we've taken for granted as ours, all the properties we felt were ours, identity, language, property, the property of consciousness, we're being invited to die. By pouring a libation, we're noticing the intricacy and the intimacy of demise with living well. We're noticing that dying is not the opposite of living and that sometimes we have to hold the crisis close to us like eating the body of God himself 
and being into a different place altogether and a different intelligence that might help us become other than human beings. So, I have just a couple of minutes left. There is a different kind of invitation here today. I think the retreat of the glacial sheets in the Pleistocene, scene, leaving us with a hollow scene, this time where we built settlements, we developed language, we developed tools for building cities. Now the transience of nature is calling us into question. It's like the red carpet is being stripped from under us, and we're being invited to fall like seed into the earth. I think this is a time of demise. Strangely enough, the etymology of demise is the transference of property. That is a deep hospitality, a radical hospitality to a world that is wanting to defeat us. Like victory. If we win at this, we failed. Like the logic of mastery needs to be composted. And that is what is being invited. The logic of permanence, the logic of continuity. This is a radical discontinuity in the intelligence of becoming. And we're being invited into that place. So how do we slow down? When my people say, the times are urgent, let us slow down. They're not saying be slow, literally, like it's a function of speed. They're inviting a different kind of awareness. They're helping us notice the insurgency of the invisible. That is what we've invisibilized, what we've turned apart, what we've pushed aside and made, you know, a byproduct of our exclusive search for progress. They're inviting something different altogether. And so the obstacle will not be pushed away, is what my people tell me, what my wisdoms derived from the breasts that I'm sucking today the milk that I'm drawing, the uh, worlds that cradle me, invite me to notice, and I invite you to notice that as well, to, to dwell with that, to stay with the trouble of that just a little while longer, that we will not come out of this intact. Just like water is poured to the ground, we're coming down to earth, and we will not arrive intact. There is a diffraction that needs to happen. There is a dying to self that needs to happen. And by self, I don't mean the personal, individualized, capitalist unit that is supposedly encased in this fleshly abode. I don't mean that. I mean, I mean all the conditions that make us possible, all the ideas that make us, the conditions that make us permanent, if you will, that give us some kind of stability. Now, this is the instability of the world saying, Maybe it's time to give that up. Maybe it's time to let go. Maybe it's time to to fall. But the beauty of a magical entangling and entangled universe is that in falling, we might be flying without the tyranny of coordinates. We might find ourselves in a different mode of being entirely by adopting decolonial ways of seeing and noticing and sniffing and being in the world we might find other ways of being alive. And that's my time.
That was Bio Komalafe. And this is Caverly Morgan. The relative is the absolute. I'd like to start today with love. I'm just curious how many of you have experienced love this weekend. And I'm not speaking of that conditional love, right? The, the unconditional love. It's easy to drop into and recognize ourselves as in this context, isn't it? I've been present to how one of the things in my own experience that assists me in having that unconditioned love be able to shine forth, you know, this recognition of our, our shared being, uh, it's fearlessness. And I had the chance last night to ask Jean Houston, thank you, wise Jean Elder. I had a chance last night at dinner to ask her about fear. I was just curious, like her life is, I mean, have you ever known anyone whose life is that adventurous and full of so much exploration? I, uh, I had a chance to ask her about fear, and she, in different words, basically said, I don't do fear. <laughs> it was really striking to me. So I want to start by acknowledging with this topic that I bring into the room today that a part of me had some nervousness given that I don't see myself as an expert on this topic. It does seem to me to be a very important conversation. And I, as I was sitting with my own nervousness around it, I recognized that part of the nervousness is a byproduct of our patriarchy, this idea that I have to be an expert in order to open a conversation. And it's also, uh, I think, a byproduct of our own whiteness. You know, that, that it's, uh, it's difficult in our, in our seeped with whiteness culture to feel comfortable saying, folks, I come with great vulnerability and openness, and I recognize that this is a topic that has a lot of charge around it, and I don't have the answers, and it's important. May we please engage? So I want to um, recognize that this is, to me, a conversation. I'm not here to bestow anything. I really feel that this conversation is about us. If, if you're in this room, I trust that you care deeply. And that is something that holds us together. That care and that love holds us together. It's, it's who we authentically are. I was deeply struck by this statement. In order to fully realize our humanity, it is necessary to recognize our divinity. Deeply moved by that statement. I was also, my, I felt that my heart was on fire as he spoke about something that's been important to me for quite some time now, and that's knowing what's true in all circumstances, in all situations, in all time, and knowing what's true for me, I'm, I'm very karmically wired to be highly relational. For me, I'm, I'm specifically interested in what's true for all people in all circumstances, in all times, for all people. 
So I wanted to prime the pump for our conversation with this. The relative is the absolute, touching race, injustice, and love. When we engage in the distortion that the relative plane is separate from the absolute, that it's something to transcend or just an illusion. I trained in a Zen monastery. I'm quite familiar with it's just an illusion. We ignore the reality of the illusion. What is the illusion comprised of? What is it made of? How is it known? And by whom? The relative may appear to arise out of the absolute as waves appear to arise out of the ocean, but like waves, both the relative and the absolute are components of a greater whole. They're not separate. And when we know ourselves as this whole, which subsumes everything, we cease to diminish or dismiss the mystery of being human. We experience viscerally that the world is my family. We really could use that during these times, couldn't we? The recognition that the world is my family. Not just the people in this room that we like, that we have something in common with, but to recognize the commonness in the whole. So from this understanding, we recognize that liberation is not a singular experience. There can be no individual ego that experiences enlightenment, and we suffer when we forget that. We suffer when we perceive ourselves as separate from the collective, on the level of consciousness, the absolute, as well as our neighbor, the relative. When we recognize the world as arising in us, awareness, there is nothing to dismiss. How then, in our own situation of privilege on the relative plane, how do we dismiss injustice and bias, cruelty, in the name of transcendence or spiritual understanding? How do we participate in systems of oppression while ignoring the effects on our neighbor as well as the whole? And do we fall for this story that the awakened life is mine to have rather than ours to be? And what does love have to do with it? I promise I won't sing Tina Turner right now. So with that, I ask, what are you present to? Where do we go from here? This is an open conversation. That was Caverly Morgan. And this is Mona Haydar, the universe in ecstatic motion.
اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي امري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد الفاتح لما اغلق خاتمي لما سبق ناصر الحقيب الحق والهادي الى صراطك المستقيم وعلى اله حق قدره ومقدار العظيم peace be upon you all what's up yeah. so my name is Mona Haydar Mona um, Haydar if you're not anglifying my name colonizing it. Um, I grew up in Flint, Michigan. I was born in Saudi Arabia. I'm Syrian-American. Uh, I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I've lived in the Redwood Forest off the grid. I've lived at the Lama Foundation, for those of you who know what that is. Um, I have lived in Saudi Arabia and Syria and Morocco, and now I'm here with you all, and I don't know why that any of that matters, but for some reason, place really matters. And We're here in this place right now together, and that matters. Our hearts are here together, and that matters. Um, we're all here to come together for some greater good, some greater creation of love and light in the world, and I, and I believe that from the depths of my heart. And um, first of all, I wanted to um, chant with you guys. You guys okay with that? Okay. So um, in Arabic, the word for human, person, being, is uh, insan. And the root word of that is nesayan, is to forget. Um, the human forgets. What do they forget? Their original nature. Their, what they come into the world with a download. Um, and we spend our lives acquiring more knowledge, but in that process of acquiring information, um, we sometimes forget that primordial and um, that, that part of us that is always there, but sometimes it just, it gets forgotten, it gets covered up, it gets hidden. And um, we have these heartbeats, we have these hearts in our chest that they have a rhythm, they have a vibration And they, um, we're constantly chanting, whether we know it or not, through our breath, through our heartbeat, through our blood pulsing through our bodies. And um, the way that I was taught is that that rhythm is Allah, Allah, Allah. And when you hear Allah, Allah, maybe you, you hear, um, you know, the socio-political implications of that. But what I hear is breath, is life. Allah, 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 right? That animating spirit inside of all of us, that breath that enters our lungs when we're born into the world and that leaves our lungs when we leave the world. So Allah, 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 right? It's, it's always there, whether we remember it or forget it, it's always there. And so the chant is Allah, 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 Allah,
Keep going. One more. question what do you feel this gentleman is doing this I like that what else do you feel say again vibration yeah definitely a resonance some people feel it really in their crown chakras some people feel it in their solar plexus Depends on what's going on for you. I think it's like a catch-all medicine, an opening, a closing, a healing, a salve. What else do you feel? Expansion and oneness. Did anybody feel afraid? Right? This word has been weaponized. Where you hear Allahu Akbar and it means something that it doesn't actually mean. It's been weaponized. Um, And for me, that's... A great tragedy, and it's a great introduction to the power of words and language, right? The power of um, good and bad, the power of right and wrong, (laughs) these oppositional energies that are created in the universe. And in my tradition, we don't have um, a problem with theodicy. We don't have a problem of the, the problem of evil, Because God in God's wisdom, the divine in the divine's wisdom, created good in the same way they created bad. Good and evil exist just as we exist with all the beauty and good and potential that we can do and all the the harm and, and sorrow we can create. That all of it exists inside of us. You know, people ask me all the time, Mona, how are you, um, how do you have a master's in Christian ethics and are a Muslim and a rapper and a mom? <laughs> like, can, like, just what? Like, explain that. And for me, it's, it's really, it's challenging. Um, <laughs> because I feel like it's, you know, like I have, I have a cat. I have two cats. Mishmash and Amar, and I have two children. I should have mentioned them first, I guess. <laughs> um, I have two sons and two daughters. The cats are the daughters. And it's like asking one of my cats if it is white with brown patches and black stripes or if it's, you know, brown with white patches. And, and, and like, it's like asking them to choose. You know, or a tiger to choose, is it black stripes and orange stripes, or is it orange stripes and black? Like, you don't have to choose one or the other. I don't exist in this world to make choices about my identity. My identity is just the collections of things I found beautiful and liked and admired and wanted them deliciously for myself, right? That, to me, is my identity, And sometimes it's the things that I hated and that I wanted to examine more because inside of this this microcosm that is a perfect model for the macrocosm, I get to really look at that ugly thing and decide if it really is ugly or not. And we have this mechanism in my tradition in our hearts that allows us to see beauty and allows us to see ugliness and to recognize that the divine 
in the wisdom of the divine created both. That they both come from the divine. That I don't have to judge. That's not my work in this world. It's not my work to call this one ugly and this one beautiful, this one good, this one bad. It's my job. In my tradition, we call ourselves heart carriers. And the one job we have, the one job we have is to return this heart in a good, beautiful, pure state. That's the one job of a heart carrier, earth walker. That's the one job. We have these, these feet that are planted firmly inside of the earth, right? We're like trees. We have these roots that grow, grow deep into the earth. And then we have these, these, these heads that are like way up in the sky. And somehow we manage to like not float up and not completely sink down, right? We're these earth walkers, heart carriers. And for me, it was always so interesting as a child that, you know, my mouth is here between my heart and my eyes and my mind. And I thought about that all the time. That why is this here? And I always come back to the idea of balance. Balance and beauty, balance and beauty, balance and beauty. Right? And there's this story that I want to share with you all about balance and beauty. Um, the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, was sitting with his companions. And this is a desert in Medina where probably there were only a thousand people in their community at the time. And um, they're sitting in, in the, the gathering space, the, the masjid, the temple. And it's, a, it's an earthen floor. And to get to and from Medina, you have to travel long distances. And a man shows up, and um, he's dressed in pristine white. Pristine white. No signs of travel on him. And he rolls up into the Prophet's mosque, and he's like, hey, what's up? Um, nobody knows who he is. And he sits knee to knee with the Prophet Muhammad. Knee to knee. You know, in, in the Eastern model, a teacher would sit like that with their student. You sit on your knees. And it was such an intimate position to be in for a person who was a stranger to the community. And he moved past that level of intimacy and he placed his two hands on the thighs of the Prophet Muhammad. And the companions of the Prophet Muhammad are sitting around him in this temple. And they're witnessing this happen. And they're like, like, this is weird. We don't know this guy. And he's like, has his hands on the Prophet's thighs. Do with that what you will. And... This man asked the Prophet Muhammad, Mal Islam? What is Islam? What is it to submit? The word in, in Arabic for Islam, the tradition I follow as a Muslim, is um, to submit. One who submits is a Muslim. And he says, what is Islam? And he says, Islam is that you do the actions. It's the form, right? You bear witness, you pray, you fast, you do these things, you give alms, you do the things. Right? You do the things. And he said, very good. The stranger said this to the prophet. He said, you've spoken truth. Now the companions are wild and out. They're like, I don't know who this guy thinks he is. And then he says, what is iman? He says, what is beauty? And the prophet says, iman, faith, is to believe in that which you cannot see. Believe in that which you cannot see. That you enter into a state that is beyond the physicality, the form, right? That you believe in the divine and you believe in good and bad. That they both come from the creator. 
And then he said, you have spoken truth. What is ihsan? Now, ihsan is a very interesting word. It's sort of hard to, to translate. I'm sure any of you who speak another language, sometimes you just have to use the other word, the word in the language that, you know, is indigenous to you or your mother tongue because it just doesn't quite capture it, right? So ihsan is to make beautiful, is to make excellent. And so he says to him, what is ihsan? And he says, الإحسان أنك تعبد الله كأنك تراه فإن لم تكن تراه فهو يراك that you worship God you worship the divine as if you see the divine and if you do not see the divine you know that the divine sees you and Arabic is a funny language it has like little riddles and secrets and mysteries hidden in, inside of it and if you pause at a certain place in that statement it changes it completely it says that you worship God, not as if you see God, but you worship God until you cease to exist inside of yourself. And then you will see God. You worship God when you, in your individuality, cease to exist, you will see God. Right? And he said, Ahsant. Yes, sadaqs. You have spoken the truth, that is what it is. And then he spoke about the fourth dimension of Islam, which is time. He asked him, when is the hour? When is the hour? And the Prophet said to this man, you know more of it than the one you are asking. The asker knows more of it than the one you are asking. And then he said, then what are the signs of the hour? And he went on to describe it. And in some interpretations of this story, there's a fifth dimension, which is space. And they come to talk about those signs of the hour, right? So you have form, physicality. You have that which you cannot see, right? Faith, the invisible. And then you have the combination of the two, right? When you, in your beauty and excellence, become harmonious, right? That you enter into a state of excellence. So everything you do becomes beauty-making in the world. You become a beauty-maker when your form matches up with your faith, right? And you don't have to do anything, right? You're no longer doing because everything you do becomes worship, in our tradition, everything. Everything you say becomes excellence and beauty creating in the world. Everything your hand touches. And literally, this hadith goes on to say that the hand by which you do becomes God and the eyes by which you see become God. You see through the eyes of God, you, you work through the, the hands of God. And what does that mean? It is to become a fully embodied and spiritualized being. And how do you do that? You do that by stopping trying. I had a, I had a, a teacher once say to me, Mona, if you would just, number one, stop trying so hard, and number two, try a little bit harder. <laughs> he said, you could be a saint. Stop trying so hard and just try a little harder with everything. And so this question is always on my heart and in my mind. Did I do this thing excellently? Did I give it my heart? Did I allow my heart to unfold for this thing, for this person, for this conversation? 
Do I allow myself to be a muhsina, an excellence and beauty creator in the world? And how do I do that? By remembering. Duh, dummy, like remember. You don't have to do anything but be your most beautiful and pure and primal self. And that doesn't mean reverting to like babyhood. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like, like really sitting in the essence of that which is beyond identity and that which takes in all of the identity and embraces it lovingly and says that I love you and I see you and I honor you and I am so much more. And also I'm nothing, right? And also I I exist in this liminal space, but I feel that I am so much more, that I'm eternal, that I'm infinite. How do I have a birth and a death experience, but I have this feeling that I'm going to live forever? Don't we all feel like maybe we might live forever, like we might be the ones? (laughs) Like maybe if we try, stop trying so hard and try a little harder, we could be the ones to live forever? And I'll tell you a secret, it's because we are going to live forever. Just not in this experience that we're sharing at this moment. And in this experience that we're sharing at this moment. And so in Islam, we don't have a problem of duality. We don't have this understanding of the world. Good and bad, right and wrong. It's all gravy, baby. It's all gravy. And, and it's all delicious. When your perspective shifts, when you attune your heart to deliciousness in the good, in the bad, in the ugly you come to understand that it's all gravy. I wanted to leave you with one last thought, and that is, we are here. We are here, and we might live forever. And what are you going to do with that? If you know that this heart that you carry inside of your chest, this body, this spirit, is forever How are you going to treat it? How are you going to be with it in this world? If it's forever, it's yours forever. Thank you. That was Mona Haydar. And we'll end with another piece by my friend Erica Heilman in Rumble Strip, Vermont. This is Erica Heilman. Here's our show, number four, your recordings about the pandemic. Welcome. Under the water, I hear everything. Sounds in the kitchen. My heart beating I don't have to rush I'm just here listening I can breathe again It's the last day of March, 2020 I'm in New York City West 100th Street Making dinner for my family But I just wanted to see if I can remember everyone that I know 
who's <clears throat> affected by this. So, woman I work with is home uh, with her parents in Westchester. They're both positive. She's helping to take care of them. My friend George um, lives in the western suburbs of Chicago. His mother is currently on a ventilator. Last I heard yesterday, she was doing very poorly. My friend Tim's Aunt Ruthie just tested positive. My friend Bruce is uh, also feeling symptoms. I don't know if you can hear the sounds now coming from outside, but at seven o'clock, what happens is people start cheering for the healthcare workers. I'm gonna move my microphone closer to the window. thing is I don't think that West 100th Street is very different from all the other streets in New York. I think we're all at 7 o'clock. We all just go a little crazy for two or three or four minutes. Make a bunch of noise outside our windows. I don't know how to capture it all, but I envision it. I envision people as they stretch outside their windows and clap and knock tongs against the tops of pots like I was doing. It's a beautiful time. This is the sound of downtown Durham. It's nine in the morning. I'm in the middle of downtown. The bull in Durham, North Carolina, in the middle of downtown, has a mask on it. I ordered a mini trampoline. I made chicken pot pie. I made chicken pot pie, and then I ordered a mini trampoline after I ate it. It was a panic purchase. I'm thinking about what this is going to be like when it's over. Will we ever be able to touch a stranger again? I mean, I'm not advocating this, Erica, but there was a time um, where, you know, you could be anywhere and you met somebody on the street or in a bar or in a bookstore or in a record shop. Your eyes clicked. You went for a drink with them. You were young. You were foolish. You were freelance. And you ended up back at their place or at your place uh, doing the nasty, going crazy. Uh, I'm sure I'm not the only person to do that among the Rumble Strip crowd, certainly in the 70s or the early 80s. 
before everything got toxic and dangerous, but I still, I wonder, will we ever be able to go back and have, you know, touch a stranger again? The other thing I, that's on my mind is about the future is if, because we've been stuck in, you know, one room apartments, if we've been living in New York or in Los Angeles or in Toronto, we've been stuck in, you know, cramped spaces and certainly young people of which I am not one. But, you know, 23-year-olds, 25-year-olds are stuck for the first time and they've decided to cohabit. And this could go on for months. Will they, when this is all over, be more sober and more serious about relationships? And or, and I think this is more likely, will there just be an explosion of profligate behavior? Will people just race out to screw anything that moves that they've never met before, that they don't know. And uh, it'll be like 1975 again. This is Tim in Durango, Mount Side by the River. And there's quite a lot of people outside, kind of because it's it doesn't seem to be affecting us. So, in a way, it's hard to understand or believe it. I mean, we're all in our houses and stuff. But I'm just trying to lament, but it's hard to lament when it doesn't... So, there's my buddy running. Aaron! What's up, man? How you doing? Good. How are you? Good, man. on my walk. Yeah, dude. Good to see you. How's quarantine treating you? <laughs> it's all right. I'm just working. Yeah, just on my little break here. Nice, dude. Nice. What's Whew. going on with you? Dude, quarantine, brother. <laughs> I've been sleeping in until 10 o'clock every day and pretending like it's normal. That's, a, yeah. that's about the same. Thing. It's... I'm trying to get myself off the... One in the morning in New York City. And I can't sleep every night at like, not every night, but about once a week at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. I'll play chess with my friend. <laughs> and he doesn't even text me. I'll just get a notification that he's challenged me to a game of chess where we each have 10 minutes to make our moves. I was like, how'd you know I was awake? It's like 2 a.m. And he was like, corona like everyone's awake at 2 a.m like you're just laying there and like unable to sleep my bed points straight out the window right at the empire state building i can see it so clearly right across the river from brooklyn and there's this red light that blinks on and off at the top and i feel like it's just telling me like I'm still here. I'm still here. It's going right now. 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 I'm still here. 3.141592653589793238462 Hi, Erica. This is Kelly from New Braunfels, Texas. And I'm looking at my nails that I painted. Um, 
kind of an iridescent disco ball because I thought it would make me happy, and it does. And so far today, I've worked out, and I walked my dog, and I danced, and I meditated, and I made a healthy lunch, and that's a pretty good day in in my world. And later today, um, the sinking anxiety will seep back in because I'm going to work tomorrow and I'm a flight nurse and my team and I go into ERs all over the state of Texas to bring patients back to my hospital and I'm scared of getting my boyfriend sick I'm scared of my teammates getting sick I'm scared for myself I'm scared when I'll be able to see my friends and family again because of my job So I'm living this very duplicitous life right now with these sunny, peaceful days countered with deep fear as I approach the hospital tomorrow. And I'm just trying to find some solitude somewhere in the middle of these two worlds. I just want to send love to all my fellow medical staff out there. Under the water I hear everything Quiet and loud is the very same thing Can only be down here Till I count to ten Then I'm up again I'm 67. Lord willing, I'll be 68 in June if I make it. I've gone through my Rolodex on my phone, and I want to make it a thing that I call at least one person. I get in there every day, you know, just to check on them and to talk. I met a met a guy last year getting parts for the tractor, and out of the blue. Uh, I see his name on the phone. I think it was the Lord when I come to put the phone in my pocket, one of them things, and the static electricity made it click and put his number in my phone. And it started dialing it. And I I shut it off. And then I got thinking about it, thinking about it. And I said, you know, I'm going to call him, you know, see how he's doing, how his family's doing. He lives in Fairfax. And and, uh, we had a nice shot. And he thanked me. He said, you know, of all the customers I got, you're the one that thought of me personally, you know. Take a moment and call. See how he's doing. I believe in the Lord, just like I believe in the virus. You can't see the Lord, but you know he's there. And you can't see the virus, but you can see the effects, just like you can't see the wind. Above the waters cacophonous but under, I'm in slow motion. You're in slow motion. We're in slow motion. I got one. I got it. 
you know? It makes me feel good. City, Clive in Toronto, Tim in Durango, Colorado, Bianca in New York City, Andrew's son reading Pie in Massachusetts, Kelly in New Braunfels, Texas, Ralph in North Wolcott, Vermont, and Amelia in Durham, North Carolina, who you heard sing in Trampoline and who's singing now. This song is by Hand Habits and Amelia Meath. Keep sending your stories from wherever you are. I listen to every one of them. And I'm pulling from all of them to make these new shows. You can sing a song, you can record a phone call or an argument, or record what you're thinking about when you're awake at 2 in the morning. Just say the date and the location at the beginning. And if you know anybody who you think um, would be interested in making a recording, tell them. I think the more people and the more places around the world that we can get into this show, the better. I'm hoping that we're making something that sounds like what's happening you can send me recordings at rumblestripourshow at gmail.com and if you can't figure out how to do it just email me and we'll figure it out I'm really happy to say that Transom is now a collaborator on our show Transom is sort of where new radio gets born and I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have become a radio producer if they hadn't existed back when I started you can learn more about them at transom.org And I want to thank Jay Allison and Samantha Brown and Scott Carrier for their support and um, collaboration. Uh, This is Erica. I will keep listening to all of the recordings that you send, and I'll get to work on the next show. Thanks a lot for listening. It's awesome, it's awesome, it's awesome, dude. This is Erica Heilman. Here's our show, number five, your recordings about the pandemic. It's awesome, it's awesome, it's awesome, dude. It's Sunday, 5th of April. And it's 7.30 by now. And like the last couple of weeks have been pretty difficult because my dad got admitted to the hospital five, almost five days ago now. 
and he's been in a very critical condition since then and we're not allowed to go see him and we're also not allowed to go see my mom who also got infected by the virus because of him and she's home quarantining right now by herself and also getting sicker every day people around here still don't seem to realize how bad the situation is right now and i think that's heartbreaking especially for people who are experiencing their fam families being torn apart because of this disease if we aren't able to see it right away like when you're outside you can't see the virus because the people that are ill are inside so it's really surreal Copenhagen, Denmark, March 28th, 2020. Shops are closed, offices are closed, public institutions are closed, supermarkets are open. But um, the city is not quiet, just uh, different sounds, different sounds appear like this bush I walked past yesterday. I have a confession I'd like to make. It's a cowardly confession because I'm only making it now that I can be sure that there were no consequences to what I did. My best friends in Paris, uh, Sam and Sophie, play traditional Irish music like I do. And whenever I'm there, they take turns. One of them will stay home and watch their kids, and the other one will go out to pub sessions with me. And on Saturday the 14th of March, it was Sam's turn to go out with me. And then I got a text from another friend in Paris saying, hey, did you guys hear that all bars and restaurants have to close by midnight? The prime minister had made a speech declaring that as of midnight that Saturday night, all bars and restaurants and other non-essential commerces would be closed until further notice. I kept getting dressed and grabbed my concertina and went out. And the atmosphere was really strange. All the bars were overflowing. It was like it was the last Saturday night in the world, and everybody was just going nuts. I knew by then that what we were doing was selfish and risky. At the same time, I was really worried that it was going to be the last time that I would be able to meet up with a friend. It just seemed like something was coming to an end. We played fast and hard, and the owner of the bar came down the stairs and sat with us right before midnight, and I thought he'd come down to tell us to stop exactly at midnight because he was afraid of cops coming by, but when we stopped and 
after like we were gonna pack things up, he's like, no, no, keep playing, I need you guys, just please keep playing. And so we kept playing, and he was weeping. Let me hear it. <laughs> you lay your head, close your eyes, and you think that you're in a beautiful rose. You can pick whichever color you want it to be. What color do you want it to be? Mm, blue. I no, 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 green. What you do with your rose, everyone can see it. Everybody in the world can see your beautiful green rose. Special thanks to my friend Erica Heilman for permission to share this with all of you. And thank you all so much for listening. Until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>